He who gathered much had nothing left over, but he who gathered little had no lack. Second Corinthians chapter 8. You know, some say it's the most wonderful time of the year, and it certainly would seem to be so. Happy holidays, seasons, greetings to all. Now, while that may be true in more ways than one, there are also certain aspects of this time of the year that need to be carefully evaluated. This can be a season of joy and happiness, but this can also be a season of great stress. Now, why is that? Well, some of the reasons are understandable. Traditions tend to bring back memories, and memories sometimes bring back hurt. But there is another kind of stress factor that might only be described as insidious. It's insidious because it gradually and subtly creeps into our bodies, our pockets, and even our own livelihood. I'm talking about excess. Excess, outrageous, immoderate behavior might be the strongest description of it, or a lack of moderation might certainly add a softer tone. But regardless of how you phrase it, God's Word has a lot to say about the folly of excess. Some of the earliest stories in Scripture already hint at its dangers. You think about Lot's tent, which he pitched near the well-watered plains of the Jordan. The waters were in excess, but so also were the sins of the men of Sodom. Other early indications abound, like the story of the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness, offering up one complaint after another. The greed of Balaam following their journey to the Jordan River and the excess of Achan after their crossing over, who lusted after the clothing and the silver and the gold and hid them all in the earth. The excess of the kings who gathered for themselves wives and horses and chariots and more gold and silver. As you think about some of these biblical stories, I want you to take a moment to reflect on some of the modern stories we read about and we see with our own eyes today. One man by the name of Joshua Becker observed what he called the season of excess. 64 days to be exact, beginning with Halloween. Just think, after Halloween makes its mark on the calendar, there are no less than five major events that quickly follow suit in less than two months' time and all contribute to this season of excess. Starting with Halloween, Becker notes that Americans spend more or around $8.8 billion dollars on candy, costumes, decorations, a one-day holiday. Half a billion dollars alone just goes toward costumes for their pets so little Roro can wear a tutu. Then comes Thanksgiving. Again, Becker notes the excess with the average American consuming 4,500 calories in a single day. That's twice the recommended daily intake of food, and then comes Black Friday, quickly followed by Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, and now Giving Tuesday. Americans are projected to spend up to $90 billion, according to Becker, for unneeded items. All such that comes just after the day we were supposed to be counting our blessings and ultimately, I would suggest, being content 
with such things that we have. And then comes the big day, Christmas. Half of all holiday shoppers are projected to spend over their holiday budget. And Becker notes that over 25% of shoppers during this time will enter the next season still paying off debt from last year's shopping. And then, of course, is New Year's Eve and New Year's. More eating, more drinking, more parties, sadly, for too many, all equating to more and more excess. Now, what I want to tell you today is that it is a sin. This is wrong, and it is going to cost you your soul. Because in so many ways, the lust of Achan, the greed of Balaam, the discontent of Israel, the excess of kings and royalty, which in one sense are all of us because we live in the wealthiest nation in the world. But I also am willing to acknowledge that for many true God-fearing Christians who get caught up in this kind of thing, it may in fact only be the folly of a lot. Lot was a righteous man, but he needed wisdom. He needed the insight of angels to help him make better decisions about the path he often let out upon. And so as we step into this season this year, I want you to think about the folly of excess, not necessarily in condemning terms, though it certainly can go that way if you are not careful, but also just in wise and discerning terms so that you can better serve the Lord if indeed you call upon him and you call upon the Father as Lord and not be weighed down by the folly of a culture of excess and outrageous, immoderate behavior. And to do that, I just want to send you home with this one message in mind. Ultimately, it comes from Scripture, and here it is. Excess does not add. It takes away. Now, let me say that one more time. Excess does not add. It takes away. Now, let me start by talking about what is probably the most uncomfortable subject for us to discuss in America today, starting with the belly. Excess does not add to your belly. It takes away from your belly. Just when you think that you might be adding to the body, think again. You might be taking away much more than what you think you are adding Proverbs 25 verse 16 says, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Another proverb talks about how if you are given to appetite, put a knife to your throat. The New American Standard Bible is a little more stilted concerning Proverbs 25, 16, but it says it this way, Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomited out. This is perfectly portrayed in the story of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. Numbers 11 records for us one of the many continuing complaints of Israel, first seen in the book of Exodus more than once. Here, the people were already being fed with the manna from heaven, but it wasn't enough for them. And so they complained about not having meat. And so the Lord heard their complaint and he granted their request, so to speak, saying in Numbers eleven eighteen, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. 
But notice what he says. He says, not one day, not two days, not five days, nor 10 days, nor 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Now, who says the Lord doesn't use a little sarcasm from time to time? And then what follows next, of course, is not a literal recounting of the people eating quail until it comes out of their nostrils. Instead, when the sea brings in the quail and the meat is still between their teeth before it's even chewed, the scripture says the Lord strikes them dead with a great plague. Now, why does he do that? Well, because the people choose, are choosing to yield to their excessive craving. They're craving for drink, they're craving for bread, they're craving for meat instead of yielding to the Lord, their God, who led them up out of Egypt, provided for them all their needs, gave them what they need, but they wanted more. Sure, they did not have all the excesses they once had in Egypt, but they had what they needed. And beyond that, they had the abundant grace of a merciful, loving Savior who had in store for them beyond the river a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, I hope that you can see the parallels to our life today, that beyond the river, beyond this life, there is a land flowing with milk and honey. But now in this life, we need to be diligent to take only what we truly need and serve the Lord, saving souls while we still have time left. The fact of the matter is, excess adds nothing in truth, nothing to the body. It took away, it took away their life, it took away their contentment, it took away those Israelites' joy and peace in God while they were serving him in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, you and I do not need five course meals, five times a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Jesus said on more than one occasion, I have food to eat, which you do not know, telling his apostles this as he understood the urgency of being diligent in ministry to God, saving souls while we have time left. And that, of course, was the will of the Lord God who sent him, John four thirty-two, verse 34. Jesus told his followers in John 6, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. He told his Jewish followers that the food their ancestors ate, that bread from heaven, that wasn't the true bread from heaven. No, he was the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life, Jesus says, John 6, 35. Did you know that the CDC reported over 40% of Americans over the age of 20, just over the age of 20, were obese. That's one out of every three people in the United States just over 20 years old. Did you know that the yearly bill of medical costs for issues brought on by or related to obesity rounds the figures of $170 billion? Now, to be clear, being obese does not make you a sinner, We've all probably experienced unwanted weight gain at some level or another. Others may be just naturally bigger. Others may endure certain kinds of injuries or maybe a previous life of sin that they're hoping to change, want to change, but maybe the circumstances now would not allow uh, a thinner, slimmer, more sculpted uh, body. But, you know, it's the things that lead up to it or could lead up to it that we need to evaluate in the present time, no matter what our 
physical circumstances might be in this moment, laziness, lack of restraint, discontentment, lust, unyielding cravings to the to, to satisfy the wants and the desires of the flesh in the present moment are those things that are plaguing your life right now, right here. That's what you need to evaluate, not necessarily your body size in the moment. You know, if Jesus is truly living and reigning in us, we simply are not going to allow these fleshly powers to take control of our lives and whatever it may be. You say food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, but Paul reminds us of this, God will destroy both it and them. What matters is that we glorify the Lord with our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6. That means we give our time, our emphasis, our strength, the subjection of our bodies chiefly and primarily for the worship, the praise, and the glory of God. That's what our bodies are for. And this is what we were created to do, excess in the body whether it be food or drink or whatever it be, it takes away, just as it did the Israelites, it takes away with endless hours of cooking and preparation and time spent thinking even about these things. It takes away our money with endless amounts of pantry and freezer food storage. Uh, It takes away from the energy we give to the Lord because there's so much food in our bellies we can hardly even move or stand to do anything. And so excess, taking away, not adding to. Now, we're not done yet by any means. Another place where too much addition actually equals subtraction is the house. Excess doesn't add to your house. It takes away, my friend. Listen again to the wisdom found in Proverbs 15 and verse 27. The Bible says, he who is greedy For gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. Another version says it this way, the greedy bring ruin to their household. You know, there appears to be some close connection made by some who take note of the words found in Isaiah chapter 5. And in fact, some editors have even entitled the section that follows there in Isaiah 5, impending judgment on excesses. And here Isaiah speaks of those who join house to house. They accumulate homes. They accumulate fields until finally they have everything and everyone else has nothing. And they alone are left. They're isolated. They have no neighbors. They have no friends around them. Why? Because they have so much. No one can even be close to them. But soon God says in effect, these houses are going to be empty These beautiful homes are going to be left without residence. Read it, Isaiah 5. And the produce of the land shall come to nothing. He says 10 acres will yield a bath. Well, in Hebrew terms, that means just a few measly gallons, or I should say in English terms, a few measly gallons by way of Hebrew measurement. Uh, One homer of seed, again, that's Hebrew language, but uh, in English, that basically equates to uh, an entire gallon of seed. An entire gallon of seed is just going to yield two measly plants to use Hebrew equivalents. Why? Why? Why is this the case? Well, not necessarily because they merely have a lot of real estate. That's not the problem necessarily, but because it is all they are after. And they seek it uh, greedily and excessively with uh, a kind of neighing lust. 
And as Isaiah says in verse 12, they do not regard the work of the Lord. This is the problem. They don't consider the operation of God's hands. They don't consider his program, his purpose. Their real estate, their produce is not for the benefit of doing the Lord's work. It's merely for the benefit of their own desires and greed. And thus, such becomes nothing more than excess. It is unnecessary. This is the nature of excess. It's unhelpful. It does nothing but sit around. It has no use but to exist for the sake of the one who desires to have it. And thus, the Lord takes offense. Why? Because all of their time, all of their effort, all of their accumulation is not for him, but it is for self. You know, the man in this house is essentially the man... In Jesus' parable, who says, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. But God then says to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? Because they certainly haven't been for him, have they? Recently, a man wrote an article entitled, Surrendering the Golden Fortress. And in it, he essentially raised the question, do we buy bigger houses, bigger storage houses, because essentially we want to insulate ourselves from the harms of a chancy world? By chancy, of course, he simply means a world that always comes with risk, always comes with the possibility of disaster. In other words, do we stockpile our savings and our possessions and our material things because We are in desperate want of security, the need to feel safe. Here's an example that this same man shared in his article. A woman wrote the following to him in an email one day. She said this, she said, I'm a working mom of three young boys. I ran across your website while researching ways in which people have made a uh, a one-income household work for a family of five. My husband and I have worked our tails off over the last 15 years to advance in our careers. In doing so, we have accumulated a lot of material possessions. We didn't start out materialistic, really. Over the years, though, we have engorged our lifestyle, including a large home and even a modest lake retreat. Two weeks ago, we overheard my eight-year-old son tell a friend, Mommy and Daddy aren't home a lot. We don't see them very much. My husband and I stepped dead in our tracks. Our hearts broke. Is all of our stuff really worth it? Of course not. The author then goes on to very keenly and astutely observe that this woman and her husband had a felt need, but it was not an actual need They had a felt need of more money, more things, which required more work and more time. They believed their family wouldn't be safe or well until they had all of this accumulation. But then they came to the realization that they were providing something very different from what their family actually needed. What was costing them heavily in one area, the home, the possessions, the long work hours, etc., was costing them much more heavily in the area that mattered most. Time with their children, time with the Lord, time with his church. We need to hear the proverb again. Greed 
excess. It all brings ruin to the household, doesn't it? Physically, perhaps, and spiritually. A final point I want to add, and uh, lest I add a little too much excess to this sermon. A general observation, if you will, from a bird's eye point of view. Excess doesn't add to your life in general at all. It takes away from your life. Proverbs one nineteen speaks in a context about those who lie in wait to shed blood. They are killers, murderers, the worst of the kind. They kill others, but in truth, they are only killing themselves. Spiritually, of course, we understand. And then wisdom makes this eye-opening comparison. It says that so are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Now, some translations speak of those who make gain through violence. Others speak of some kind of ill-gotten gain. The idea here is is to be one that is very general. In other words, whoever acts in accordance with the same kind of lust, the excess, the bloodthirsty drive of a murderer, the same rule applies, the same consequences. They take away from their own life. Their excess, their unyielding want, their stop-at-nothing treasure hunt ultimately dispossesses their own life. How so? Well, again, think about your time. Think about your efforts. Think about where you are applying all of your objectives and your goals in life. These passages and others like it generalize in many ways because the possibilities are so numerous, so endless, it's too much to pinpoint one area of life. Paul warns about the love of money, Uh, 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 an example there, of course, that's common to many, and that man's greediness for it and the consequences of it. Two things ultimately occur, he says. One, the man who has this greed, this lust after money, he strays away from the faith. Well, I think about that. Why does a person stray away from the faith as a consequence of uh, the love of their money? Well, I think it's clear because of all his time, his effort, his diligence that he gives forth to that drive. It uh, That drive for excess ultimately leads to his straying away from his faith. He has no time for the Lord. The word stray literally means to wander away. And so that's what happens to his life. He wanders away, even if perhaps originally he had a heart for God. And the second thing that happens, according to Paul, is that he pierces himself through with many sorrows. And I just provided one example before of a couple who eight years later finally realized that they had ultimately been neglecting their son, eight years that they could never return to themselves again. Do you think this couple had sorrow? Did they pierce themselves through with many sorrows? Well, most assuredly they did. This is the idea of the proverb, taking away the life of its owners. Excess doesn't add. In fact, it strips us of all the things that really matter in life. It is a robber of our time. It is a robber of our families. Excess can be a robber of our spiritual enrichment. My friend, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. I won't take credit for that saying. Someone else said it. 
But indeed, the price of anything is the amount of life you are willing to exchange for it. As you spend and give yourself to one thing, it is costing you in another thing. None of us are omnipresent. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, on what and on who is my time best spent? Where is it going to cost me elsewhere? And am I willing to pay the price? Jesus said one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. This world is so empty, though it may appear to offer so much. Nothing it holds is eternal. Therefore, its worth is truly empty. We brought nothing into this world and we can carry nothing with us. No U-Hauls on the hearst, as they say. Excess adds nothing to your life, but it certainly has the power to take away from your life. I told you before, this wasn't necessarily a condemning sermon. It's not necessarily meant to be that way, but I can tell you this. I sure do want to do better, don't you? I want to be more content with the things that I have. I want to worry less, think less, be less consumed by the things that I don't have or even the things that I do have but don't need don't need to have. I want to leave you with this story. On his 99th birthday, Carl J. Prince, a commissioner from Sweden to Canada, was asked for rules by which a long and useful life might be achieved. And this is what he said. He said, I would suggest one definite rule, and that is one must be temperate or moderate in all things. And then he quickly added, perhaps I should say all but one. For in the Bible, you can read the commandments to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the only things we can rightly do to excess.